Welcome to the Linguamania podcast, presented by the Creative Multilingualism team. We are a group of people who love languages. We think languages are an essential part of being human. They're part of our identity and part of our culture. And we think they should be celebrated at every possible opportunity. So, our podcast shine a light on some fascinating aspects of languages and language learning which you might not have come across before. I'm Professor Rajinda Dudra from Birmingham City University. I'm also a researcher at Creative Multilingualism. We're exploring the links between languages and creativity. In this episode of Linguamania, we're going to be looking at the mechanics of translation. As technology develops, the quality of machine translation is getting better and better. Even so, can computers ever completely replace real-life human translators? I'm Dr. Lenny Filippo, a researcher at Oxford University. I work on Prismatic Translation, a program looking at how translation can be creative. That sounds strange, right? Surely translation is just putting words from one language into another. But translation is so much more than that. It's a very human thing. Sure, computers can help us, but they can't do it all. They can't capture different shades of meanings. They can't offer different interpretations of the same thing. And they can't build communities. Stay tuned to find out more. You're probably thinking, why do we need people to translate when we have machine translation? Why should we bother learning a language when we can just use Google Translate? There are loads of online apps and websites that can do translations for us. In fact, some of these apps are very accurate and fast. So why then do we need people to translate? I think Matthew Reynolds may have the answer for us. Matthew is a professor at Oxford University who works on literature and translation. Matthew, why do we need people to translate when we have machine translation? The way machine translation has developed over the last few years is really amazing. Lots of people use it the whole time, I use it the whole time, and it enables us to interact with one another, to understand things in ways that we simply wouldn't have been able to before. So the question about it really isn't whether it's good or bad, um, whether it works or doesn't work in the abstract. The question is, where does it fit in all the different ways that we have of using language and communicating with one another across our different languages. I think a really important thing to see here in thinking about this question is that we use language in all sorts of different ways. Some of the time we use language in very regulated ways. Say if you're writing an essay for school or a business report or a news report, in those circumstances you're going to be using quite formal vocabulary, you're going to be worrying about whether you're using what counts as correct grammar. So in those circumstances, the language that you're using in a way really isn't your language. Um, it's a regulated kind of language. It's the language of a business report, say. And computers really like that kind of language use. The more regulated the bit of language is, the better, they, better able they are um, to translate it. But of course, we also use language in lots of more informal and idiosyncratic ways as well. 
we might speak dialects, we might mix up the languages that we use, we might be chatting to members of our family, we might be joking around with friends. And in those contexts, the kinds of language that we're using um, are much more idiosyncratic. And this is the kind of language that computers find much more difficult to cope with. And they always are going to find this individual kind of language much more difficult to cope with because it's more distinctively ours as individuals. It's a more human kind of language used. Let's think of a couple of specific examples. If you imagine a vulnerable person, say um, an asylum seeker or refugee, in an interview in which they have to put across their story through the medium of an interpreter. And the language they're using might be a particular dialect, um, it might not be a standard language. But also they've been through particular experiences and circumstances that are you know, distinctive to them and that you really need to be a human being to imagine your way into and understand in order to translate that story, to put that story across in the other language. So that kind of circumstance, you're always going to need a human interpreter. Another kind of instance is a, is a literary text, say, for instance, a poem. So literary writing, again, is um, a kind of language use in which we're idiosyncratic, we're playful, we can do all sorts of original and distinctive things. When we're faced with a piece of literary writing trying to understand it, we use our imaginations. We bring all our individuality as language users to bear in that, in that moment. And when you're translating a piece of literary writing, again, you need to use your human imagination to understand what's going on in the language and recreate it in the language that you're using. Literary writing and therefore also reading and translating literary writing is always going to be a creative thing. People sometimes say that poetry is untranslatable. What they really mean by that is that what translation has to be when you're faced with a poem is a particular individual, imaginative and human thing. So you always need to be a human being in order to do that kind of translation. Matthew's just told us that translation is not in fact mechanical. It's creative. It's not just a matter of right or wrong but of what expresses an idea best. So it's interesting to look at lots of different translations of the same thing. Different translations can show us something exciting or unexpected in books we think we know. Take Jane Eyre, for instance. Lots of us have read Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre in English. But did you know the book has been translated hundreds of times by hundreds of translators into more than 50 languages? At Oxford University, the Prismatic Jane Eyre Project is looking at those translations with fascinating results. Let's chat to Adriana Jacobs and Yusuf Kasimir about their work on the Prismatic Jane Eyre Project. Adriana is a professor of Jewish and Hebrew studies at Oxford University. She's researching Jane Eyre's translation into Hebrew. Yusuf is a doctoral student here at Oxford. He's researching the book's translation into Arabic. Adriana, is the book in Hebrew very different from the English? What's interesting about its Hebrew translation? So the first Jane Eyre translation into modern Hebrew came out in 1946, so two years before the establishment of the State of Israel. The translator Hannah Ben-Dov was not a professional translator, and as far as I could ascertain, this was her only published Hebrew translation from the English. The other is a translation of a text by Sartre. It's possible that she picked up this commission as a paid gig or out of love for the book. We don't know. But at any rate, it's a remarkable translation. 
Although mid-century Hebrew was already a robust vernacular language, the way it was spoken and written then does differ markedly from today's Hebrew. And to some extent, this older Hebrew is well-suited to the English of Jane Eyre. Its formal language feels a bit arcane now, the way Jane Eyre's English reads to a contemporary reader. And while more recent translations retain some of Jane Eyre's formalisms, the Hebrew in general is, feels more idiomatic and contemporary. Since this 1946 translation, Jane Eyre has been translated several times into Hebrew, which is very unusual for a language with a relatively small global readership. So it says something about Jane Eyre's popularity and marketability that the Hebrew publishing industry has supported the retranslation of this book so many times in the last 70 years. One thing that I find really interesting about these translations is how each translator renders Jane Eyre's mythical language. Hebrew has words for otherworldly creatures like demons and fairies, but its lexicon is not quite as robust as the English one. So each Hebrew translator has to come up with distinct solutions, sometimes even inventing or adapting Hebrew words and thereby amplifying the language through translation. But these moments in the Hebrew translations also say something about the flexibility of Hebrew and its capacity over centuries to create and absorb new words, a skill that persists into the 21st century. Yusuf, different countries speak Arabic differently. Did that impact on the book's translation? In fact, this is a fascinating phenomenon when it comes to the Arabic language. The Arabic language comprises what we call lahajat, or the equivalent of dialects, and the written script as well. So these spoken dialects belong to all these different countries across the Middle East and North Africa. But the written solely belongs to the media, the books, and also the things which are perceived as sacred and holy. For instance, somebody in Morocco would understand the Egyptian vernacular, but not the other way around, simply because of the popularity of the Egyptian cinema and also the very presence of Egyptian in all these reports across the region. With regards to the translation of Jane Eyre in Arabic, it's done normally in what we call fusha, the formal register. But in fact, the very first documented translation, which um, goes back to 1965, was completed by an actor-director Egyptian, a prominent figure in the Egyptian cinema. And it was, it was serialized on the Egyptian radio. What is quite interesting about this particular translation is that it combined the spoken register, what we call the dialect, and fusha, the formal register, in order to make the translation more accessible and in order to attract also a different audience and different also people with different cultural backgrounds. With regards to the second, for instance, a translation which is considered as important as the first one was completed solely in what we call fusha or formal Arabic, mainly because this particular translator, a Lebanese translator in 1984, wanted to capture the period when the book Jane Eyre was written and to render all these religious and mythological references in formal Arabic or the Arabic that belongs to the elite. 
A major difference, uh, for instance, between spoken registers, the spoken Arabic and the formal register, the written Arabic, is at times the, the absence of certain sounds. For example, the name Jane Eyre. In, in Fusha, in formal Arabic, we have the sound A and E and U, but the sound A is only available in spoken, which is beautifully captured in a Dimirdash translation. We've looked then at what happens when you study many translations of the same text and what this reveals about language. Next up, we're going to explore the impact that translation can have on a community. Over the past few years, Prismatic Translation has been running poetry workshops at the Oxford Spires Academy. Oxford Spires is a school where the majority of students speak English as an additional language. At the poetry workshops, we ask these multilingual students to write poetry in their home language. We then translated their poems into English. I'm here with Kate Clanchy, the poet and novelist who ran some of the workshops there. We've also invited one of Kate's former students, Mukaheng Limbu, who's going to read us a poem they wrote in one of the workshops. Kate, running these workshops sounds like a wonderful experience. Could you tell us a bit about how the kids reacted to the translation of their poems? Well, there was the translation of the poems, there was also the writing of the poems. Um, it, one of the things that was very nice was drawing the communities of languages together in the school. So we, we had, um, for example, 20 Polish students who drew, drew, drawn together and they all knew each other, but they had never spoken in their same language together. So when they were suddenly speaking together in Polish and writing in Polish, they were very interested and brought a whole new aspect out to their their memories of their home and their own identities within the school. And they wrote very different kinds of Polish. They wrote the kind of Polish according to the age when they left. So their spelling was the spelling of a 10-year-old or the spelling of a 6-year-old in their own language. Um, and some, they, and they, they very much enjoyed writing in their own language and then translating. And then when they also produced hybrids. That was quite interesting. They were written in Ponglish. Um, and that was even more striking when we were dealing with um, African languages, with Kiswahili, that all of the kids then wrote in a kind of combination language, which I think reflected how they how they spoke at home, a mixture of English and Swahili. Um, but they, they quite often bury their language in school. Um, they speak English and they speak English to each other and they pretend they don't have a home language, so it's really lovely to bring their home language in and have it made official so that they know that their poetry and their language is important. Some of the poems that started in these workshops have gone on to win prizes and awards. Kate, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Amina Abu Quraish, who uh, is a, came from Syria in 2016, and she came almost straight into our Arabic workshop. Um, and, she start, and she wrote a huge poem starting from there in, in Arabic, um, which she insisted that we translate, even though we were past that point so and academics from Oxford University helped us to translate it and we sent this huge poem into the John Betjeman competition which she won with an incredibly powerful poem it's called Lament for Syria and that poem has gone on all sorts of places it's been set to music um, and premiered by the Welsh Symphony Orchestra and she's read it in Germany and she's read it um, different locations around the UK it's been made into a cartoon in Dubai she's been um, on CNN, I believe, with, with again with with that poem that that came through those workshops. So it's a, it's a wonderful tribute to what can happen. Um, and we had a, another runner up with a half Polish, half English poem 
in the John Birchman competition also from from Jan from those workshops so um, and several of them have been included in um, the anthology I put out with Picador last year which is called England Poems from a School which is different all of the poems in that book are by migrants um, and many of them were originally written in different languages proof of the richness that's there in one school. Mukahin, can you tell us where you're from and how the workshops helped you? Um, so I'm originally from Nepal, um, but I grew up in Oxford. Um, and the workshops, uh, the workshops helped me understand my relationships between the two languages that I speak, so Nepalese, uh, Nepali, or and um, English. Um, and what I sort of learned and I uh, developed from sort of the workshops is how sort of meanings can be lost in translation, but at the same time, how new meanings can be formed, um, which is extremely exciting in poetry itself because it opens it up to sort of experimentations with different forms and syntax. Um, when you sort of translate a poem uh, back into sort of um, English, um, the words may sound disordered, but it lends itself to a sort of a very distinct voice um, that I think is, uh, that for me was particularly a cross between both English and Nepalese, and it helped me sort of feel more represented in that voice and felt more true to myself. So I felt that the workshops really helped me in um, sort of constructing or um, developing a voice that I felt on. complemented both both of the cultures that I come from. We'd love to hear you read a poem now. So this poem is called I Translate a Love Poem into Nepalese and Back. When the heat of a night eats a curry sandwich, taste him like love. When the fatty fat is caught between the teeth, eat him like love. When you skim the rim of a crystal glass, leaving the high ring of a finger cut, siren him like love. When the legs of your hair perk up like an eavesdropper in the packet of cold water, whisking in the basin of dirty clothes in cream soap, scrubbed by the revolver of your father, clean him like love. When the musk of the monsoon's breath is caught by the net of your beard, as we unravel the threads of this jumper we leave him smelling naked like love grab him like love when the left leg slips through through the duvet like a pickle between the lips numb him like love when a walk is bending out a dive from the board of the pavement map light like love when the orbit of the sun is toasted along the slant of your eyes that was great thanks so much Thanks for listening to our Lingua Mania podcast. The series is produced by Creative Multilingualism, a research program led by the University of Oxford and funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Our aim is to make languages more visible, valued and vibrant. If you've enjoyed this episode, have a listen to the rest of the series. And you can find out more about Creative Multilingualism at www.creativeml.ox .ac.uk that's www.creativeml.ox.ac.uk or follow us on Twitter at creative langs all one word and you'll find all this information on our website. Mm-hmm.